There was no evidence that Governor, that, that uh, Mr. Noriega was involved in drugs, no hard evidence until we indicted him. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not. Not wittingly. Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably, but uh, it was for the good of the system. Oh, we don't mess around other people's well, elections, yeah. podcast. This is the podcast that covers all kinds of uh, topics related to rackets, such as organized crime and drug cartels, but it also focuses heavily on white-collar racketeering, such as corrupt politicians, uh, crony capitalists, corporate criminals, etc. So with that in mind, I really have the perfect guest on the show. His name is Matthew Dunlap. He's the Secretary of State in the state of Maine. Uh, But most notably, he was a member of the Trump administration's Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity. Uh, Welcome to the show, Matthew. Well, thanks for having me on. I am am absolutely thrilled to have you here. You recently uh, released a report that uh, gave your conclusions um, after a ton of lawsuits and, and legal battles to be able to find out what that actual commission was up to. Um, if you don't mind, not everybody is familiar with this topic. Um, if you kind of could give a little bit of background about how the whole commission came about. Well, it's a little bit of a shaggy dog story, but, you know, <laughs> right after the 2016 election, when Trump won the Electoral College, he said publicly that he would have won the popular vote as well um, if it weren't for the three to five million illegal votes that had been cast. And it, that caused a bit of a stir when he said that. You know, um, when the president of the United States says that there's millions of illegal votes being cast, um, it gets people's attention. Now, one of the things that people don't really understand about American elections is that the federal government really has very little latitude or presence in the conduct of American elections. It's really the states occupy the field in the conduct of elections. And you get to a state like Maine. I'm the chief elections officer for the state of Maine, but elections are really run by 503 municipal town clerks. Uh, And so I just print the ballots, we tabulate the votes, you know, we certify the results. But the work is really done at the local level, and that's true across the country. Like most states, you know, county clerks are the ones that are responsible for elections. So it's very, very decentralized, which is a good thing. It actually adds to security and the discussion that's been going on about. Russian hacking and all these other things that have been happening. So um, with that being said, you know, when the president made that, you know, that that allegation, um, it kind of festered for a little while. And there are broad, divergent series of viewpoints on how elections should be conducted. You know, whether we should have things like a photo ID requirement or registration deadlines or proof of citizenship, which has been really sort of the uh, the battle flag of, of Secretary of State Chris Kobach out of Kansas, who's been really on this for years. And because um, I've gotten to know him over the years in the National Association of Secretaries of State, we've always gotten along pretty well, even though we, don't, we probably don't agree on more than maybe one thing politically. And, and everything else is completely diametrically opposite. So, um, you know, about the end of March, it was a few weeks after we'd had our, our winter 
NAS meetings in Washington, D.C., and this had been the topic, a topic of discussion. He called me up and said, you know, the word is that the president's actually interested in pursuing this and putting together a commission to look at the integrity of our elections. Would you be interested in being a part of it? And, and I, I kind of scratched my head and said, well, you know, I'm not really looking for extra work. Um, in Maine, I, we actually have one of the larger Secretary of State's offices in the country. Um, I'm one of three Secretaries of State that manages motor vehicles, um, and as well as elections, corporate filings, archives. I have about 425 employees, so I have a lot to do, especially during legislative session. You wear a lot of hats. So I, told my, I wear a lot of hats, and so you know, I told them I'd kick it around with my staff, and um, I was kind of surprised because when I mentioned it to my deputies, they were all wild-eyed. They said, absolutely, if they're going to actually be doing this, you, if you have an opportunity to be there, you've got to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to be there to tell our story. You know, we, we're pretty proud of how we do things in Maine. You know, we have one of the highest uh, rates of turnout for voters in the country consistently. Um, nobody ever questions the integrity of our elections. We have a very open, accessible, yet secure process. And, all right, all right. Uh, and I didn't call him back right away. He actually called me back a couple weeks later. He said, you know, I, I really got to know if you're going to do this. And I said, yeah, put me on the list. You know, thinking they'll never pick me, you know. <laughs> so, um, and then in early May, uh, he called me back. Actually, it was May 10th, to be precise. And he called me back and he said, um, I just want to give you a heads up that tomorrow morning the president's going to sign this executive order creating this commission. And there's not going to be a press release or anything like that, um, you know, but we, we will probably mention a few names. So there, there might be some press on this. Um, might be some press. So uh, the next morning after the president made the announcement, it took me about two hours to get out of the house because my phone just kept ringing and ringing and ringing from ABC News, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, you know, CBS, PBS, you name it. And I'm assuming this was a first for you, that level of, that level of media. Yeah. (laughs) And that's, that was a first. I mean, I've been in this business 22 years. I like to think I've done some important things. And I've been in the paper a lot, Maine. I've been, you know, sure. Maine Public Radio, all the local TV stations. I've been, you know, I've had an op-ed in the New York Times. You know, what you'd expect from a senior-level state official, but nothing ever like this. And the thing about that is, is that it didn't let off. It, it, it has stayed consistent ever since that moment where I've actually been on a first name basis with a lot of national correspondents, which is really, really weird. Hmm. So, um, you know, anyway, getting back to the narrative of all this, you know, after that announcement, there was like this dead silence. And um, for weeks, we didn't hear anything more. And in fact, you know, reporters were calling me. It's like, what's going on with the commission? I was like, I don't have any idea. I haven't heard any more. And, you know, I, I kind of wrote that off, if you will. You know, it's a, it's a new administration. They probably don't even know where all the bathrooms are in the White House yet, you know. So finally, we got to about the middle of June, and uh, I got a call. Actually, I got a call from a reporter at CNN, the White House correspondent, wanting to know if I'd heard anything. I said, no, I haven't heard a thing. He said, well, if you do, would you let me know? I was like, all right, give me a number. So I write down the number. If you I'm going to lose this before I hear anything. And the very next day, I actually got a call from the White House. And just give me a heads up that things are moving. Uh, We're planning a conference call near the end of the month, uh, looking at our first meeting in D.C. sometime middle of July. Hope to have all the members appointed by that time. And it's like, okay, great. Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to call Elizabeth Landers back. So I pick up the phone, I call her. 
Now, this, this whole thing really set the tone, in my view, in, in retrospect. So I, I called Elizabeth Landers, and I told her this is what I told you, you know, meeting, you know, conference call near the end of the month, meeting sometime in the middle of July. And I'm driving home that afternoon, and my cell phone rings, and it's Mark Paoletta, the chief counsel for the vice president. Just want to understand our relationship a little bit here. I said, what do you mean? He says, if I'm going to give you information and you're going to pick up the phone call CNN, we're going to have a problem. Well, you know, I kind of knew where he's coming from because I've been blindsided that way too. You know, that's why I apologize for that. I said, look, it wasn't a matter of me picking up the phone call CNN. I actually had a standing media request. Right. And it wasn't like I was giving out any classified information. And in fact, when we actually had that now infamous conference call on June 28th at 11 o'clock in the morning. One of the first things I said was, if we're going to be talking about anything that's classified or confidential, you need to let us know. Because as I'm sitting here at my desk in front of my computer, I've got a dozen media requests about this phone call. And you know, at, at that, in, in that call, we were told, first of all, that we couldn't discuss anything of any great substance because it was not a public call under the Public Meetings Act. You know, we only talked very high level about what our first you know, meeting was going to look like. And Secretary Kobach kind of threw out this idea about where do we start with information and what about um, getting the voter files from the states? And I said, well, you want to be a little bit careful about that yep. you know, because, you know, elections officials are jealous guardians of that information. And all the state's laws are a little bit different about how you access it. So you may want to ask, not demand, and only request the publicly available material, not right. the, you know, not the third level development stuff, you know. And, and you so, know, so, sorry to interrupt you, but there, there's a lot of privacy issues associated with that as well. Well, there isn't. No, there isn't. There isn't. There isn't. There isn't. And this is what was really curious about that, because you know, one of the you know, as chief motor vehicle officer in the state of Maine, I was on the front. I was at the barricades for ten years on the Real ID Act, and. Finally, the state of Maine you know, knuckled under the pressure of Homeland Security and, and agreed to comply with, with Real ID. And Real ID is truly a thousand times more invasive. You know, um, facial recognition technology, imaging birth certificates, on and on and on. And people just kind of shrugged when I said, Are you, aren't you worried about that? And they said, well, we've got to fly. So, you know, that's, yeah, here I am now sailing into this. And, and, you know, we agreed that we'd do that request. We didn't need to see the letter. Now, unbeknownst to any of us, and this came out in the documents later on, was that Hans von Spakovsky and Jay Christian Adams, who are real close partners at COBA, had actually been working with him to draft this letter weeks before we ever had the conference call. And, you know, we had the conference call at 11 o'clock in the morning. They sent the letter out at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And the, the backlash was absolutely vertical and immediate to the point where I was getting these media requests that afternoon. It's like, my God, what they put in the letter, you know, that's what I've been looking for it. And they'd send it to our general public inbox. We found it. You know, a lot of that stuff wasn't even information we could provide. But the thing about that, this is what really buoyed me through the whole thing is the reaction of the American public to this, because in, in our voter file, what's available to a qualified entity, not everybody can get it. I mean, you have to either be a candidate, a political party, an issue campaign, or a qualified research institution, and the Secretary of State has discretion as to whether or not they sell it. You know, the, and the money that you get for it goes into maintaining the voter file. But the information that's available is really only the name, address, year of birth, not exact date, just the year of birth, 
um, party affiliation, what precincts you live in, and whether or not you voted in the last two election cycles. Pretty high-level stuff. Right. And because, you know, what Kobach was interested in is to try to see how many Matt Dunlap's, you know, how many places is Matt Dunlap registered to vote in. And you can't discern that with that high-level information. You have to get much, much deeper down. So the information was never going to be terribly useful for that purpose anyway. Nonetheless, they send the request out. We review it. And part of what they said in the request was that all this information was going to be made publicly available. Well, Maine's election law says that anybody who accesses the list has to keep it confidential. So we couldn't turn it over. Right. In fact, most states refused to. And, um, and so they retooled the request. They sent it out again. And then they said that it was not going to be made public. And then my question was, under what authority does this commission have to discern what is or is not a public record? And until I get that information, I'm not sitting in my file. Never heard back. So uh, we have our first meeting on July 19th, and it was mostly just bloviating, you know, people talking about how important elections are. We get sworn in. Um, you know, the president comes in and thanks us, you know, um, the vice president says there are no preordained outcomes, no foregone conclusions. Right. We're going to keep an open mind on this, which turned out to be a lot of crap. You know, <laughs> it was completely foregone. And then there's more silence. Um, and this is really strange because you know, I've been on a part of a lot of commissions and task forces. I mean, I was on you know, a task force around, and this was in one of the Washington Post reports. You know, I said, you know, I've been on, I shared the Marsh Island Community Deer Task Force, which had about a dozen meetings that were all public. We put stuff on the internet. We published stuff in the paper, including every piece of public input. We are far more transparent than this presidential commission. It was crazy. Right. So near the end of August, I get another call from um, Andrew Kosak, who worked in the executive office of the vice president. And he said, you know, we're going to have a meeting in September. This is our agenda. This is who's going to be speaking. And I'm like, great. You know, we're finally moving on something. It never any input was ever asked for. You know, is there anything you want to include? Which didn't occur to me at the time. You know, I didn't have any idea how the list was put together of witnesses. Nobody ever asked me if there's somebody I wanted to bring in. And we were meeting in New Hampshire. And so right before the meeting in New Hampshire, the Friday before, we were meeting, I think it was on a Tuesday. Um, that Friday before, Chris Kobach publishes an op-ed saying he had all the evidence he needed right here in New Hampshire of voter fraud. And he was looking, pointing to about over somewhere between five and 6,000 college students that registered to vote on Election Day, had voted on Election Day, and now here we are in September, none of them have a New Hampshire driver's license yet. Well, as it turns out, New Hampshire law ex excused them from doing that. They, all these students did was obey the law. Right. And now Chris Kobach is accusing them of voter fraud. But not only that, so, let, let, me, let me interject here. Guess what? You know, there are a lot of freshmen who's probably moved to that state who are new college students who probably hadn't gotten around to changing their license yet or any or any of that type of stuff. But I mean, it's different from state to state. Like in Maine, if you register to vote, you're establishing residency. Right. Now, if you establish residency, the understanding is that somewhere down the road, you're going to get a, a Maine driver's license and register your car name, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But New Hampshire, their law carved them out. The, the New Hampshire law said, and they've changed it now because of COBA. Um, the law said that if you're a college student and you register to vote, if you, as long as you're matriculated in college, you don't have to worry about all that other stuff. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so, I mean, it was, it, it was sort of absurd what he was saying, and it kind of fell out of my mouth at the meeting. I said, you know, equating 
not updating a driver's license with voter fraud in this case is just like saying that if you have cash in your wallet, it's proof that you robbed a bank. I mean, it absolutely does not follow. Yeah. If you so know, if, after that, if you don't mind, I just want to interject because that's really what all of this comes down to. And I, just for the people who aren't really familiar with this, the whole original claim by Trump, it has it's it's basically the same line of logic. It it had to do with a Pew study that pointed to. There were close to 2 million dead people whose names hadn't been removed from the rolls and that there were over 2 million people who were registered in, in multiple states and those names hadn't been removed. But then he took that as a leap that obviously that's then evidence of voter fraud and obviously all those people voted for Hillary Clinton. So it's that same line yeah. of logic. Um, another thing is because you mentioned the names uh, Spakovsky. Spakovsky, yeah. Okay, and, and Adam. So these are these guys who have this background and, and voter. Their whole their whole niche is 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 voter fraud or, or trying to look for it in order to to remove names from the rolls. And 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 really too, I just want to also add on that Von Spakovsky and Adams are incredibly partisan. And I remember when Von Spakovsky was at the Department of Justice during the Bush administration, he came out. I believe it was him, I, I remember him, came out to uh, one of our conferences as we were implementing the Help America Vote Act, and he really put the squeeze on every Democratic Secretary of State for not being in compliance. Never held to account any Republican Secretary of State who was not in compliance. And, you know, it, it felt very, very uncomfortable at the time. Like, my God, these people are really partisan. Right. And, you know, that's how he's always behaved. And, you know, he, he had an email that was FOIA'd, and he denied writing it at first. But then when the Heritage Foundation, where he works, was asked about it, and they said, oh, yeah, that was Hans. <laughs> um, he wrote an email about the formation of this commission, and he was lamenting that they were even – he was disgusted that they were even contemplating putting Democrats on this commission. Right. And he said that even mainstream Republicans would spell its doom. You know, and that's, <laughs> that's how partisan this guy is. Right. So, so this all getting back to your point, the whole issue of voter rolls, which is a real live issue here. And I think, you know, looking back on it, this was a gap in the Help America Vote Act, which was enacted by Congress after what happened in Florida in 2000, which provided for, you know, clean, up-to-date uh, voter uh, voter lists, statewide voter lists, the central voter registration files, which were, you know, we in Maine we had 503 different lists. Created in different ways. Some of them were, you know, hard copy only. Some were handwritten. Some were electronic. Now we have one electronic voter file, which is a great tool. But the issue around, you know, people are, we have a very nomadic population and people move a lot. Uh, people pass away. And, you know, the, the methodologies for keeping that list clean are a little clunky. And, you know, to, sure. to that end, sometimes you have people who are on a voter file who haven't lived somewhere in five or six years. And, and I think going forward, we're going to have to find a way to address that because it just leaves open that question. Um, so, it doesn't necessarily mean that anybody's doing anything wrong. It just means that it, it is not giving us what we hope to have, which is a clean voter list. Yeah, and I would say so it, in, it leaves the potential for voter fraud, but it does not mean that it is the that it is evidence that voter fraud is taking place, you know, and, and not why, on a and why no, and, and, Well, I mean, I think the potential there is what, you know, Kobach insists is happening, which is double voting. Right. Now, the problem with that is if somebody actually does vote twice, you're going to catch it. 
as you do your, you know, your post-election cleanup, you're going to find out that somebody voted in two different jurisdictions. It won't be, in, it won't be preventative and it won't be in real time, but you're going to catch it. And it is a felony and people will go to jail. But here's the thing. You know, 95% of Americans are incredibly law-abiding. So it really doesn't happen. The actual voter participation numbers are not all that high to begin with. There are not a whole lot of really motivated people out there who, who will go to these links to begin with. Now, it hovers nationally around 50% in the presidential cycle. You know, Maine's around 70%. Other states are, are far less. But, you know, this was never this. These were never, these were issues that were never discussed by the commission. What we were talking about was voter fraud and criminal wrongdoing, illegal aliens voting. You know, it's like, okay, she, it, and in fact, at the New Hampshire meeting, they had this guy, Loss, who was testifying. He actually did a lot of research for the National Rifle Association. Okay. And he was he was um, proposing that, you know, anybody who registers to vote be run through the National Instant system that they use for firearms buyers. And I asked him if he was kidding. He said, no, I'm quite serious about that. And I'm like, okay, this is stupid. You know, because what are you doing with taking a partisan stab at Democrats? If you like background checks so much, put registered voters through it. Through it. And I was like, that's just crazy. So I didn't take it seriously. I don't think anybody else did either. But anyway, after that meeting, the wall just dropped. I heard absolutely nothing after that. And, you know, there's no discussion of another meeting, you know, in which it, it was a pretty tense meeting. I mean, I, Kobach and I went at it and, um, you know, I don't, uh, Secretary of State Connie Lawson, who at the time was president of the National Association, also a member of the commission, I thought was really quite strange that throughout the entire course of the meeting, she never said a word. She never asked a question. She never made a comment. And I know the whole thing was very uncomfortable for her because she's from Indiana. Mike Pence is a good friend of hers. They served in the state Senate together. And I, and. I, and I knew that she was very uncomfortable with how the administration was handling all this. Right. Um, but, you know, so in, in first, you know, Secretary of State Bill Gardner, who, like me, is elected by a legislature, his difference is that the majority of his legislature is Republican and he's a Democrat. So he has to be very careful how hard he kicks these people in the butt. Right. So anyway, after that meeting, we just didn't hear anything further. And, you know, people were asking me, I was getting media inquiries, again, national media inquiries. And I said, so no. But then things started happening. And, you know, the Secretary of State from Minnesota, Steve Simon, sent me um, an email as a, as a fundraising flyer from a, a very conservative organization called the Minnesota Voters Alliance, which sues him like every month. <laughs> and he said they were touting, they were touting that they had been invited to present testimony at the December meeting of the commission, which was at that moment, my first indication of even a meeting in the future being contemplated at all. <laughs> so I, I'm asking, are we meeting in December? I don't get any response. I try to call COSAC because he's the executive officer of the commission. Voicemail box full, never returns calls, doesn't respond to emails. And you know, at first I thought the guy's just busy, but now I think I'm getting ignored, you know, and, you know, because as I'm talking to reporters about this, you know, one of them had pointed out to me the Cummings v. Gore case. You know, like there was a case where a commissioner was walled off and went to court, sued, and prevailed. So you may want to keep that in mind. So I thought about that, and it's like, well, you know, you know, hopefully we don't get around that road. And then I'm walking into church on a Sunday morning. This is October 17th, and I get another, uh, I get a text message from a reporter 
with an attachment of a Washington Post article about the lead in, the lead um, researcher for the commission, a guy named Ron Williams II. And apparently he had worked with Adams in the Department of Justice when he was in there, because I didn't know that. Nobody ever asked me if I had staff I wanted to get hired, you know. Right. So um, basically the entire staff were former employees of Von Spakovsky and Adams, which is, tells you something. Oh, yeah. Um, so anyway, the, the article was about Williams and his arrest the previous week in Maryland on charges of possession of child pornography. Now, apparently they frown on that in Maryland. But, you know, um, to this day, I've never heard what happened to him. And I couldn't get a response. The only correspondence I got, again, from the commission, I got two pieces of correspondence. Um, notification that David Dunn, a former Arkansas legislator, who was also a Democrat, also on the commission, had had routine surgery. And something went horribly wrong, and he died in the operating table. They gave us notification of that. And the next notification I got... Um, well, there was one other piece, but the next notification I got was the notification that the commission had been dissolved in January. I just wouldn't, I just never heard from anybody again, really. So, um, except for one other instance, which I'll get to right now, which was, you know, after that, I got pissed and I sat down and I wrote a formal letter to the commission. And I said, I'm asking these questions because I don't know the answers. Who are we talking to? What is our schedule? What materials are we going to be referencing? When are we meeting again? And can, I decided coming to New York. This was before you wrote this letter again before it dissolved, correct? Yes, this is this is back in October. Okay, right. I'm kind of jumping back and forth a little bit. I apologize for no, that. No, no, but, no problem. Um, so I send the letter off and silence. And then ten days later, I get a response from this is the other response I got from Cossack, and he said that they were reviewing my request with legal counsel. And then I sat back and I kind of scratched my head and I'm like, am I or am I not a member of this commission? Okay, so so this is where it gets weird. And, you know, uh, today is Friday. Um, I have nothing on my calendar. I have to administer a road test to a young driver living this afternoon nearby. So I'm working from home and I can do that once in a while when the legislature is not in session and things are kind of slow, which is what the case was in October. And I get a Facebook message from a friend of mine who's pretty connected in Washington. And they say, um, can you give me a call myself? Sure. So I call the cell phone. What's up? Well, um, she, this person said, you know, Matt, listen, people are talking about you down here. Your name is on everybody's lips on Capitol Hill. And I have a message for you from a, from a U.S. senator through their chief of staff. They don't want to be named. They said, look. You're not going to take on the White House. You're a secretary of state from a small state. You have no resources. They can just bulldoze you. You need to get some outside counsel, and this is the number you need to call. So I sat down for a minute, and this was the, probably the only time in this – and I had a lot of doubts in this process, but this was the only time I was actually frightened. And I thought, my God, what have I gotten myself into? You know, it's right. one thing to have a little swagger and send a formal letter, but now I've got the federal <laughs> government the mounting, you know, mounting up against me, right. and I need to get lawyers. Right. So I, I called the number I was given, and I left a message, and I said, my name's Matt Dunlap. I'm the Secretary of State of, State of Maine, and I was told I should give you a call, and I think I might be in some kind of trouble. And five minutes later, the phone rang. It was Melanie Sloan from American Oversight. She said, Secretary Dunlap, we are so glad to hear from you. 
So, you know, to accelerate this a little bit, you know, they wanted to go to court right away. And my viewpoint of it was, you know, that's not how we do things in Maine. You pick up the phone and make a phone call. Right. And my it's staff, not even necessarily a main thing. It's just let, let's let, let's handle this the right way. Right. That's right. And, you know, and my staff was very freaked out by all this. And they said, you know, you don't know who these people are. You don't want to become a tool of their agenda. Mm-hmm. And it's like I, I get yanked in eight directions. Mm-hmm. And again, I was talking to a reporter about it. And I, I said, you know, you know, the, the staff feels like, you know, I risk being either made a laughing stock out of, of being used for somebody else's agenda or completely isolating myself on this commission. Mm-hmm. And they said, can you describe a circumstance where you'd be more isolated than you are now? And that's a really good point. So uh, one of the turning points came when I had a conference call with the lawyers, and they were great, by the way. They answered all my questions. And one of the questions they asked me was, do you know the genesis and the purpose of the Federal Advisory Committee Act? I said, well, they told us about the rulemaking requirements. And this is where I got mad at myself, because usually you know, I, I've learned you never let somebody else tell you what the law is. You go and read it yourself. <laughs> and they explained FACA. It's like it was supposed to embrace divergent viewpoints, evidence from you know testimony brought from people of a broad spectrum of political viewpoints in complete transparency. And with a bipartisan commission, they said they've never seen a commission that was actually chaired by two people of the same party. That's unprecedented. Hmm. And I thought, you know, we're not doing any of this. And I, and I thought, you know, maybe now it's time to file the complaint and make them believe I'm serious. Right. And I really, honestly, I'm, not, I'm, I'm still naive in this, right? right. And you like were still hoping that suit. the threat would, I'm assuming you were hoping that the threat would, that would clean things up and we can, we can all play fair now, I guess. Is, is that That's kind of right. Did. <laughs> you know, I accepted a phone call saying, we're really sorry. You know, we've been tied up with a bunch of other things. We're going to get you a bunch of bunch of information in the next few days. You know, would you hold off on this lawsuit? And we respect your right to do it, but could you hold off? And I would have done that. But instead, the door got slammed in my face. I got an email from COSAC saying um, – actually, I didn't get an email from it. It was in the press. It went to the press. It had a press release <laughs> saying that they looked forward to vigorously defending themselves in court. And then the name-calling started. I mean, Kobach told uh, the Washington Post that I was paranoid. Von Sakowski said that I should be ashamed of myself for this publicity stunt. I should resign from the commission. And then my favorite, um, Jay Christian Adams' organization told Newsweek magazine that I was the fresh new face of victim and fragility culture. And they asked my response to this. I said, you know, my response to it is I'm asking for the schedule. (laughs) You know, know, it's not, you you know, the Washington Times, which is sort of a conservative, yeah, version of the post, you know, they, yeah. their reporter called me. It was like, it was really kind of assailing me for this. And I said, look, I'm, this is what I'm asking for. I'm asking for what our schedule is, who we're talking to, what our communications are like. And they never did a story. They had nothing to stand on. And, and to be fair, you know, I, I actually think you're being pretty mild. Like I've read one of the, the, the op-eds that was, I think it was written by Kobach and um, Spakovsky that was in the Washington Examiner. Yeah, they went right after I mean, the, you're being pretty mild on, on the mud that was slinged at you, to be, to be honest. Yeah, they went right after me. Um, and, uh, you know, but, and <laughs> you just respond with, this is what I'm asking for. Is it really so outrageous? Right. So, you know, at the end of it, you know, again, making a long story short, you know, we filed the complaint, then we filed for a preliminary injunction. On December 22nd, um, you know, in the evening, the, the judge ruled in our favor, gave us 90% of what we asked for. 
And we had a big conference call um, that evening with the lawyers. And I said, I said, I half wonder if they don't pull the plug on this thing now. And January 3rd, the president did just that, dissolve the commission. And then they turned around and said that I had no longer had standing, that I didn't deserve the documents because the commission no longer exists. Because, you know, that's asking for the records. Right. Uh, the judge finally ruled on that in late June of this year and gave, denied them any type of a stay to appeal. You know, and we thought, well, they'll wait to – and said we had to have the documents by July 18th. And um, we thought they're going to wait to the last minute. They're going to appeal in the, in the circuit court. Well, in the meantime, you know, Trump goes to Helsinki and, you know, commits treason for all intents and purposes. And so I think the White House was kind of busy walking all that back. But they wound up sending a bunch of stuff. Now, I'm not entirely sure they sent everything, and the lawyers are still looking at that. Mm. But we spent a couple of weeks going through it, making sure that, you know, the correspondence from private citizens, um, if they had their personally identifying information redacted. Um, and we posted it all. We posted it all uh, last week. And because the media firestorm continues. But the upshot of what we found was that they had absolutely nothing quantifiable about voter misconduct. And I hate to use the word voter fraud. I mean, it's voter misconduct, double voting, impersonating other voters, stealing ballot boxes. There's no evidence of it. And, you know, Kobach continues this ghost story that, oh, it's real, it's out there. You know, you extrapolate these numbers and it's everywhere. And it's like, well, and he went right after me and saying that I was willfully ignoring the voter fraud going on right under my own nose. And I refused to see it. You know, he talked about 8,400 cases of double voting. And, and I, my response to that was, show me one. Right. Show me one indictment. Show me one prosecution. They claim they have a thousand prosecutions of voter fraud. Well, they do. They do. To be fair to them, they do have a thousand cases of prosecuted voter misconduct. Uh, what they don't tell you is that those cases date back to 1948. Oh. I mean, it, it, it's actually, such crap. Well, actually, from what I've read, at least, uh, I think he was saying that it dated back to 2000. I think publicly that's what, that's he what stated. they say. But it, publicly, right? What, what he's publicly that, stated is that they have a thousand uh, cases since 2000. Even if that was true, which is not a lie. Even if that was true, that was before passage of the Help America Vote Act, which instituted a lot of reforms. So, you know, they can't – they're trying to they're trying to extrapolate. And one of the cases that they, they trotted out at the New Hampshire meeting was this case of, you know, however many hundreds of people who voted twice in a Chicago election in 1980. And we all just laughed. I mean, okay, yeah, that was 30-some-odd years ago, and the law is completely different now. Right. Yet you're, they're using these old cases to justify massive changes to our election law. And what do they want? Well, you know, they, you know, because Kobach has lost in court promoting a, um, a proof of citizenship requirement in order to register to vote. And the judge in Kansas actually ordered him to go for continuing education in law school. But <laughs> he did such a lousy job in court. If, you know, if you don't no mind, evidence of any problem. Are you talking about the same one that was the, the ACLU lawsuit? Is that the one you're talking about? That's right. Well, the ACLU has actually been pretty busy in lawsuits with Kobach. And now <laughs> it's, it's, been, it's been revealed that you know, Kobach's been doing this for a long time. This is not just him the Secretary of State. He's been traveling around the country getting municipalities to enact ordinances against landlords renting to illegal aliens, against 
employers hiring illegal aliens, and if they do, you know, great consequences. None of these ordinances are being enforced. In fact, they've been, these towns have been sued, and Kobach has actually charged them. He's made over $850,000 in legal fees defending these, these ordinances, all of which have been pretty much either um, uh, turned over or simply rendered inoperative. And these towns have spent millions of dollars. In fact, one municipality had to pay the ACLU's legal fees over almost $2 million. And let's let's just so, interject no. with that, with that. again. This is a guy who's running as a fiscal conservative who just might become the governor of Kansas. He's he's in good standing to probably win that one. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's, they're going to have a recount. The election right. they don't even have all the votes tabulated. Yet. I'm just so saying there's that, a little bit yes, written I'm on not, that point. Right? No, I know, but but that's the point. You're you're bringing up all of this cost to the taxpayer for again for somebody who's who's presenting himself as a fiscal conservative. Yeah, and that's you know of course you know I always whenever I meet with somebody who's really really good at what they do, I always point out to them that the difference between me and them is that they have to be qualified for the job. I just have to get more votes than somebody else, and that's that's one of the that's one of the risks that you face in public service is that. You know, people get elected based on the message they carry, and his message has resonated with a lot of people in Kansas. Right. And I think part of that is, you know, this whole national thing with Trump and our own governor, Paul LePage, who's a Tea Partier, and he just goes around kicking everything over, and people say, how can this guy get elected? Well, you know, we don't have the same economic engines that you have in, where you are down in Florida, but, you know, we've had a sort of a continuing state of recession ever since about 2001. And we're just now coming out of budget deficits. We're seeing small surpluses start to avail themselves to the legislature. And what that means is that, you know, a lot of folks have not made as much money as either they thought they were going to make or we thought they were going to make. So they're not paying as much in taxes. But they're also not starting the businesses that they thought they were going to start. So they need health insurance. And, you know, they're not buying that new pickup truck. They're not taking that vacation. And it's been like that now for almost 18 years and people are sick of it and they're angry and they vote their anger. And when you vote anger, you get an angry government. And, um, you know, they, uh, people who ride that wave oftentimes historically, I'm not saying I'm not speaking speculative. This is historic. You know, xenophobia is a great way to get elected. You know, the people who are stealing your jobs. And that's, I think where the, the tip of the iceberg is there on the immigration debate. Stealing our jobs, well, jobs a lot of us don't want. You know? And I think really, um, at least you know, kind of getting back to the the non-citizen voters issue is a guy like Kobach can can continue to just make these sort of broad speculations, um, but a lot of people don't really know about how he's actually been fact checked. You know, you know, while you know testifying, um, and and one of the things I remember with that ACL lawsuit. It was because he kept citing a study suggesting in his state that there were like close to twenty thousand um, non non citizens who were registered in Kansas. But when he was actually, you know, again under testimony, he had to admit that really he'd only found evidence of six people in his state, you know, yeah. who were, were non citizens who were registered to vote, and it, and then couldn't even, you know, present any evidence that any of them actually voted. So. The, but, you can, but, you know, you can keep I, going I guess, over there and blasting these big, big numbers of all these people, but that's not under, you know, you're not, you're not under oath. When you know, you're I, I, I get this, things. I get this, 
I get this stuff all the time. You know, during the election when all this was going on, I mean, people would send me stuff on Facebook about some story about, you know, illegal immigrants getting bust somewhere. In fact, I, was, I did a, a show like this guy out in St. Louis, and he, he was a Republican operative. And he said, I've never seen voter fraud. He said, that, you know, he's an attorney. He said, we got a call during, when Romney was running for president, we got a call that there's a buffalo of illegal immigrants headed to a polling place. We rushed right down to the polling station, and what the bus was, was a city bus. <laughs> you know, it, it was ridiculous. You know, but, but, what, but, you know, and I get this stuff all the time, and, but what perpetuates it is that it's almost this tribal memory. And, you know, let's face it, in America, we have a pretty colorful history around election, electioneering, ballot box stuffing, intimidation. Right. Yeah, and it, the laws, this has I happened think the laws, in the past. Yeah, absolutely. The gangs in New York style stuff has happened. You know, again, it was over 100 years ago, but yeah, it, it has happened. And so we had that, that collective memory of it. So, you know, it's like when I was a kid growing up in Costa, Maine, small town of Bar Harbor, where Acadia National Park is located. I remember in second grade, before Halloween, right, the teachers giving us these dire warnings. You probably had the dire warnings, too, about you know, you're out trick-or-treating people giving you apples, right? right. Never take an apple right, right. or throw it away. Right. And why? Razor blades. Razor blades. <laughs> Needles. You know, I've always thought this was a conspiracy by the candy companies to sell all that three packs of candy at <laughs> a pretty $11 a pack. <laughs> you know, but I, in all my life, I've never heard of a, of a poor kid biting into an apple into a razor blade. But, you know, it, it kind of perpetuates itself, even though it's never happened. And I think the voter fraud mythology kind of carries that same thing. We all know what's going on. There's a, you know, there's a commie in every closet. It's that same mentality of fear. And when it's, when it's actually fostered and perpetuated by a chief elections officer or the president of the United States, you know, people who don't do what I do every day have just enough doubt in their mind to believe it. Right. Or I think it might be true. And I think that's where the real damage is. The damage is in a, a, an erosion of voter confidence in our processes, which actually work really, really well. Well, not only that, and that's really what I, one of the things I really wanted to get into, is once you perpetuate this myth of voter fraud, that then creates, uh, you know, for something to, to remove those names from the roles that do need to, remove, need to be removed, instead of using a scalpel, they're using the hatchet. And it's being used in ways that are very partisan. Um, maybe, maybe you could kind of. I know that you know more about this than I do, but I mean, obviously, there was the the recent Supreme Court uh, decision in Ohio with the the voter purging law. Um, but yeah. again, and, and that is all under this pretense that we need to make these drastic changes. Um, but something like over a hundred thousand people just in the state of Ohio were purged from the voter rolls. Um, so, I mean... Well, and this is, and this is, this is an issue. And, you know, we don't do wholesale purges um, in Maine. A lot of states don't. But, you know, you go back, and this is where Congress needs to do some work, not only on the Help America Vote Act, but also the National Voter Registration Act, the so-called motor voter. And that was, of course, that was enacted before there was an Internet, at least Internet widely available. NVRA stipulates that, you know, you can... A, you can go to like a motor vehicle office when you're updating your driver's license or getting a license or doing a registration, and they you can they'll have voter registration cards there. You can register to vote there, and they're sent to your town office or whatever, and you're added to the voter registration rolls without having to make a separate trip. It was a real innovation at the time, but that was before the internet. So 
Um, the way it works is that if you do not vote in two federal cycles, that's four years, if you don't appear, what the, what the election officials of the state are supposed to do is send a postcard to that address. And if it comes back or they never hear from you, then in two more cycles, another four years, you can be canceled from the voter list. And this is where people have gotten very upset with what Maine and other states have done using tools like the Pew Center's Electronic Registration Information Center or Cobox system that he uh, makes available for free. That's the, the infamous cross-check cross system. Cross-check, yeah. Very, yes, very, you know, frankly, you know, these are not great tools. They're kind of clunky. You remember what I said about how high level the voter information is? Right. If you have a Matthew Dunlap in Old Town, Maine, and a Matthew Dunlap in, you know, Albuquerque, New Mexico, right. You, you have to you're get registered several two states, layers. sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to get you have to get into some very deep information to make a, an assertion that it's the same person. Right. You know? exactly. And even if you get the same the same date of birth and the same last four numbers of a social security number, you can only say that you're about ninety nine point nine nine percent certain it's the same person. So, um, but it's pretty certain. Right. But if we have that much certainty that you know, there's a Matthew Dunlap in Albuquerque, New Mexico, that has not voted in four years and has registered to vote and voted in another state. That that's pretty much confirmation that the person no longer lives in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. So you take them off the voter list. And many of the advocacy organizations are saying that's a violation of NVRA because we didn't do the postcard notification. So, I mean, the postcard notification, like I say, is a bit antiquated. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're hopeful that Congress will at some point will address this and help modernize NVRA and you know, maybe update HAVA to deal with this interstate voter registration issue. Because all it does is just give fuel to people to say that there's rampant voter fraud when really it's just all it really creates is an administrative headache is all it really does. There's no real criminal activity going on. Right. And you mentioned it earlier. And, um, I wasn't really familiar with what you're saying, but that it actually all washes out in the end. It's basically a moot point begin with because i guess that there there are ways of tracking that to make sure that people didn't double vote well the thing is and again this is something the public doesn't see is that you know the polls close at eight o'clock and then everybody runs the tally you know we don't just like put everything in a closet and go home i mean there's a lot of work that goes into the post-election cleanup i mean you have people who show up and register on election day, if you're a statewide name that has election day registration, well, you have to go through all this work to get them entered properly onto the rolls. You do the voter participation history, because that's part of the voter file. Um, you know, we track the, you know, whether or not you voted in the last election. So that has to be all entered in by hand, because it's done with a, you know, we don't have poll books in Maine. So, you know, you have a printed voter list, and you walk in, you declare yourself or what street you live on, and they check your name off the list, and they hand you your ballot. Well, then afterwards, they take that voter, that incoming voter list, and they enter in all the check marks into the voter registration system. So, you know, as you start to collate all this information, and we get complaints every year, say two to three hundred instances of suspected double voting, usually involving an absentee ballot. And this is how it works. Somebody orders an absentee ballot. You know, they can order it up to 90 days in advance. It shows up. So they put it aside because they don't know the issues and they don't know the candidates and they're going to wait a little while. And uh, 
they forget they ordered it. Or they mark it and they think, um, I really wouldn't vote for Matt Dunlap on a dare. I can't believe I just did that. Um, or they stick it in a pile of seed catalogs and they can't find it. Upshot is they show up on election day and they vote. Well, now there's a problem because somebody's been issued two ballots. So you know, part of the reconciliation process that we do, we do a strict chain of custody control. We know exactly how many ballots a town gets. They keep track of how many they issue, including how many are issued absentee, and then they keep track of how many come back. The numbers always have to come out the same. It's a strict accounting measure. So if you have somebody who's you know, come in and they've gotten an absentee ballot and they've showed up at the polls, you can discern pretty quickly whether or not that absentee ballot ever came back. And if it didn't, well, there's no problem. Right. Don't know what happened to it. Right. Don't care. And so you check that one off the list. And in the 12 years I've been Secretary of State, we've only, we've only forwarded two cases of double voting to the Attorney General for investigation and prosecution. And their investigators came back to us and said, don't know how hard you want to push this because they're both elderly people who were moving and were given paperwork they signed. They got two ballots. They didn't different names on the ballot. They didn't realize they were doing something wrong. There's really no intent here. Right. And it didn't affect the outcome of the election. You so, you know, to say that, <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's what we deal with when you talk about. So there is a lot of due diligence. And in those two cases, by the way, it was caught by the clerks as they were reconciling their, their voter participation histories and incoming voter lists. They noticed that these people had moved and they called each other and said, yeah, they showed up on my list too. And that's what started the investigation. Clerks actually talked to each other. And so sooner or later it gets caught right. because all this is reconciled at some point. Okay. Well, let me um, let me ask you this. So you've got the documents back. If you could maybe just kind of give the you know give the listeners like a general idea of, of you, you know you fought you fought all this time to get these documents as far as the commission. What what were the, what was the general outcome of of all of that? Well, I mean, there was a lot of you know it wasn't it was there's a lot of nothing there. Frankly, I mean, they, they, like I said, there's no, there no evidence of voter fraud. But one of the things that we found very troubling, I mean, remember, we only met twice. Right. We never discussed <laughs> what we were going to actually be working on. And yet, commission staff were framing out the report. And they had several Before sections. Before even going into research, about, they've already come to their conclusion is basically what you're saying. That's right. They're writing their report. And there were several sections that were placeholders for demonstrated cases of voter registration crimes and voter fraud, and they were all very tellingly left completely blank because they didn't have any evidence of that stuff. <laughs> but there, that, that was going to be the that was going to be the crux of the report. And um, you know, some of the sources that they were using were widely discredited anyway. And then um, also to the states that refused to give over the voter file. The commission turned to the state's Republican parties to get copies of to get their copies of the voter file, which, by the way, is illegal. Yes. You can't share a copy of the voter file with, unless um, you can't share a copy of the voter file. Period. Right. So the state political parties could not share those, and and um, it's it, it just stuff like that. There, there's absolutely no substance to prove their thesis. Uh, a lot of you know seamy communications, you know. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of frantic scrambling after I filed a lawsuit, but I mean, there was there, like, like I said, we were still investing to make sure we actually did get everything. There are some <laughs> unexplained gaps in the correspondence, mm. which is not really that much of a shocker. 
Wow. Okay. Um, you do have these. Um, I think you, you made it all public, right on on the on the website there, right? Yeah, we put it all up on our on our website, and uh, the folks at American Oversight. I just want to talk about them for a second because sure. they were absolutely un, they were unbelievable. And you know, I've worked, I've worked with a lot of attorneys in my time, and it was you know it was they had another law firm working with them. It's um, Patterson, Belknap, Webb, and Tyler out of New York City. And I've worked with a lot of, like I said, a lot of lawyers over the years, and I'm not a lawyer. Um, but, you know, working with these folks, I mean, especially when we got into the early weeks of the, of the litigation, I, I had a lot of doubts about whether or not I was doing the right thing here. It was not clear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it didn't know how it was going to turn out. And then they'd send me a brief, and I'd read the brief. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's really just this simple, you know, and... <laughs> Yeah. I've likened it to, I mean, they were so professional and they did such a great job for us. Um, you know, they were really working for the people of the United States more than for me. Right. And I've likened it to, you know, if you, if you have a, a, a company softball team, right? We've all played softball. And then Giancarlo Stanton shows up, says, can I join your lineup? <laughs> I mean, it was just that dramatic, you know, how, how good they were. And, um, you know, and it's actually informed in many ways, when I see how other people in public office uh, look at litigation, you know, it's like, okay, if you're going to do this, then maybe you shouldn't be where you are. Um, so they, they've been absolutely tremendous to work with right up to this moment. And of course, they did it, you know, all uh, pro bono. It didn't cost the taxpayers a nickel for them to do this. And that was a, that was a real bonus. Right. Well, and do you know how much the, the, the commission actually cost? As far as tax funding, I remember coming across a figure once, and of course, I can't recall that now. Yeah, I have. We never talked about a budget. I have. I mean, it's a White House. They pretty much have bottomless pockets. Right. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I have no idea how much it costs. Wow. Well, so I'm, I'm going to link. I'm going to link to all that stuff in the show notes. There. Um, basically, is there anything else you'd like to add uh, to tell the listeners? Well, I mean, that's not really. I mean, that's that's pretty much the narrative of it. I mean, <laughs> there's one other thing, and, and, and just to tell you how pervasive Cobot's viewpoint is on this. After the, the first meeting in Washington, D.C. last July, Newsweek called me up and said they'd done an interview with Kobach, and they asked him the question, did Hillary Clinton win the popular vote? And he said, we may never know. So they asked me to respond to that, and I said, we, we mathematically know, because 50 states and all the territories certified their election results. Right. You know, it, it's, a, it's a matter of math, but he keeps sowing that doubt. We may never know if she actually won the popular vote. So that's what we're up against. And the only thing that you can really do about it if you're concerned, and I don't care if you're concerned you know, on my side of the equation or if you think I'm a total phony. And you're, you think that I'm, you know, willfully just trying to undermine the president. Um, you know, frankly, I'm one of those American citizens that wants the president to succeed because if he fails, we all fail, right? Right. The- um, but if you're either, no matter how you approach this, if you're worried about it, the only solution is to get out there and vote. Right. That's the only solution. Yeah. No, I mean, and 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 I don't think any reasonable person who actually looks at all looks at all this information could interpret it that way you know so again i'm going to link a whole bunch of information um here in the show notes um 
I, I thank you for your time. Um, more importantly, I, I thank you for all that you've gone through. You know, a lot of people would have just sat down and let it happen, you know, and, and, you know, just dealt with it, but you did fight, you know, and as a result of this, this is a very important topic because there are going to be more laws in the future that try to, um, you know, purge more people from the voter rolls. This is, this is an incredibly important topic. Um, and people need to know that, you know, all of these myths about widespread voter fraud, it is, it is that. It, it is a myth. So, again, you know, I, I just I want to thank you for your time and, you know, really all that you've done. So, so thanks, man. I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, it's my pleasure. And, um, you know, like I say, I've said it a thousand times, I don't really go looking for trouble, but it does seem to find me pretty easily. So, you know. <laughs> all right. Well, again. Thanks. Thanks so much. Um, I hope to keep in touch. Um, as far as the listeners, I, I ask that please share this information. People really need to read this stuff. Um, share it with your friends. Uh, give the podcast a five-star rating. Um, and really, if you do want to support the podcast, the best way is to go out there and grab a copy of my three-book series, Rackets. It's on the legalization of drugs and gambling and the decriminalization of prostitution. Um, so with that said, again, thank you, everybody, and have a great day. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. I am concerned that the size of some of these institutions becomes so large that it does become difficult for us to um, to prosecute. You can have a license. Price is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars plus a monthly payment of five percent of the gross of all four hotels in the store. Corleone. <laughs>